Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. This is my third application security focused episode, and today I'm joined by Curtis, Bang, Jeevan, and Mark Goodwin to discuss how we go about bridging the gap and fostering collaboration between developers and security teams. Before we delve deep into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Curtis, do you want to kick us off? Sure. I'm uh, Curtis Koenig. I'm the head of AppSec at Gen. Uh, we're the merger of LifeLock and Avast, for those of you who have never heard of us. Uh, and I currently lead the application security team. Perfect. Welcome, Curtis. Uh, Feng? Yeah, no, sure. Uh, I'm Feng Zhu. I'm the principal of DevSecOps at X-Design. X-Design is a agency consultancy company based in UK. And uh, I'm mainly looking after the application, application security in a various project, including an internal and a client project. That's me. Amazing. Jiban? I'm Jiban Singh. Uh, I run the product security team at Twilio. Um, if you don't know, Twilio um, is responsible for a lot of the communications. Uh, so the SMSs, the emails, the those sort of stuff that you receive uh, likely came from our systems. Uh, I run both the application security and the cloud security teams at Twilio. Amazing. Thank you very much. And uh, last but not least, Mark. Hello, uh, I'm Mark Goodwin. I look after application security at Matillion, uh, who build the data productivity cloud. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking about some app tech things today. Perfect. Before we jump back into today's episode, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Wallace. Qualys are pioneers and leading providers of disruptive cloud-based security, compliance, and IT solutions. They've got a global footprint with over 10,000 subscription customers, and we're thrilled to have their support as we tackle the ever-changing challenges in cybersecurity together. So what does Qualys do? Well, they help organizations like yours streamline and consolidate their security and compliance solutions onto a single platform. We're talking about greater agility, better business outcomes, and better cost efficiency. Qualys isn't just another security platform, though. With just a single agent, Qualys can continuously deliver the security intelligence your business needs. It enables you to automate the full spectrum of auditing, compliance, and protection for your IT systems and web applications, regardless of where they are, be it on-prem, in the cloud, or even on mobile devices. So if you're interested in managing and reducing your cyber risk in a speedier, scalable, and more measurable way, head over to qualis.com to learn more. So as we've all discussed previously, um, you'll all have a question or a statement on how to best foster collaboration between developers and security teams. Um, I think it's probably appropriate to start the conversation by first establishing the uh, overarching relationship between security and development. Um, we'll then delve into a practical structures and approaches to collaborations, considerations for uh, operational integration, and finally address the long-term commitment to security efforts. So on that note, uh, I'll come to you first, Mark. Okay, thank you. So my question is on an organizational thing. How close should security, in particular, AppSec and technical security teams, be to engineering? What are some good ways of managing the tension between the need for direct influence and the need for independence for engineering decision-making? Perfect. Curtis, do you want to kick us off? Okay. So I, I think that's a really interesting 
question to begin with. Um, there is obviously a tension there of security needing to be independent and being able to give good advice back to engineering teams and being able to hold the line on good security decisions, but at the same time, not being so far away from the engineering team is not understanding what they're trying to achieve. Uh, and so, you know, in my mind, you want them to be close. You want them to be sort of like siblings, but you don't want them to be in the same chain of command. Perfect. Thank A good question. Actually, from my side, um, I think we should uh, reduce the distance, of course, between the engineer and the security team. We need to understand what is actually happening on the floor, right? On the working floor. However, there are other priorities they have to juggle, right? To the deadline, the other things, quality. So we cannot be too hands-on with uh, what they are doing, but we need to also, I think, share the responsibility of the security with both development team and engineer, uh, the security team. That's probably my thought. Jiva? Yeah. Um, I, I always want to make sure that security, I, I love the concept that Kurt just talked about siblings. Uh, that That's perfect analogy for it. Uh, I do want us to be very close. Uh, in some situations, I always enjoy when security is actually reporting into the engineering organization as well. Um, it, you have a lot more influence uh, within the teams there. And I love hiring engineers and making them security people, um, mostly because those engineers with the engineering background, they really know how to talk to other engineers, but they also know, they empathize with the engineering teams and understand the requirements and technical capabilities need to be an engineer. So when you have this massive problem, you want to be able to ensure that you provide the right solutions for the team themselves. So I love hiring engineers and making them security people. I love folks, uh, security engineers that have engineering backgrounds. I love being a part of the engineering organization. The tighter that uh, relationship is, um, the better it is to sort of reduce that risk in the organization. Amazing. I'm back to you, Mark. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, yeah, thanks for those answers. Um, again, I really like Curtis's analogy of, of sibling teams and, you know, very much uh, tallies in the way that I see it, and that's good. And I really like uh, Jivan's thought on um, having essentially a common language to sort of help bridge the gap if you've got uh, people in your security teams that come from a development or an engineering background, uh, even if there's an organizational gulf between them, at least they speak a common language, right? I think those are useful things. And I understand later on, we're going to be talking a little bit about security champions, and that's one way of having um, at least a toe in one camp and their organization separate, right? So um, not wanting to, to spoil what we're going to talk about, maybe maybe that's something that you can do as well. Perfect. Okay. Um, I, I suppose... You know, in one way, I suppose we've discussed the organizational aspect. Um, on that, then um, we will. It makes probably makes sense to go to Feng um, as delving deeper into the security champions community is a, a good starting point for practical strategies for collaboration, right? So, Feng, do you want to um, propose your question? Yeah, sure. Uh, I have worked on several uh, security champion program in different company. My question is more about how do we establish a robust security champion program and uh, that actually address the AppSec issues and uh, how do we ensure that we can continually uh, continuously training and retain them because uh, we all know that a security champion is not even a part-time job 
and uh, how can we uh, guide them to enable uh, this security champion to lead the uh, security practice on the daily task they are facing. Perfect. Jiren, you are smiling away there, so I'll come to you first. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely not a part-time task. Uh, so, uh, which, like, uh, because of that, you want to make sure that security champions are actually rewarded. Um, a, a lot of situations, you have these programs where security champions are going away from their day-to-day -day activities, and sometimes they're even penalized for the amount of time that they're putting on into a champions program because it's not going towards their performance, uh, the things that they are supposed to be delivering. So uh, a robust security champions program needs incentives for people to become uh, security champions in itself. Um, and the program has to be purposefully organized and set up as well. Um, you need to have make sure that you have buy-in from all the upper levels of engineering leadership, also security leadership so that people are incentivized and they want to join a program like that. Um, I always try to sell it to, uh, to the engineers themselves that want to volunteer for champions to say that, hey, if I'm hiring an engineer, if I imagine if I'm an engineering leader hiring an engineer, do I want to hire an engineer that has a lot of security knowledge or one that doesn't have a lot of security knowledge? So recruiting folks in makes it is a lot easier when you sort of uh, sell it in that particular way as well. And uh, we want to make sure that the program actually has a goal. Uh, what, what is the actual goal? Are you trying to reduce risk? Are you trying to um, get engineers to have more knowledge? Are you trying to reduce the operational work on your security engineering team? So you have to have a well-defined goal, a purpose, make sure that, that the engineering leaders and security leaders um, are putting their weight behind it. And we will need to make sure that we're rewarding the champions themselves to really help make sure that you have a sustainable security champions program in itself. Amazing. Mark, I'll come to you. Thank you. And um, completely agree what Jiron said there. Um, I think uh, making sure there are incentives and reducing disincentives is a really, really good part of it. And um, in terms of the management support, um, I'd like to call out that it, it's not just necessarily just in the organization the developers work in and security. If your resources are allocated and externally both to engineering and security, you know, for example, if you're in a product-led org, you need to make sure that there's buy-in there as well. Um, a couple of things I'd like to add to that, though, and really it depends where your developers are starting out. An observation I'll make is that if your developer community are already generally made up of um, more able or more experienced developers, there's less work to do to get them to a place where they are useful. And I've worked at a couple of places where the developer population was exceptional, where many of them could easily outpass me on most security matters. Clearly, they don't need a whole lot of work. And um, I've worked at other places where the quality of developers was um, maybe less, or maybe uh, the population of developers was less experienced. And, and, and that means that what you can expect from them, what it takes to get them there, it is very variable. And so it depends where you're starting. And it also depends on what they're getting in terms of support. It's great to say they're going to need support from management, whether it's an engineering or product. You don't necessarily get to move that lever. And so what you want to be able to do is to set the amounts you're expecting of them to be appropriate to the support that they're getting. It might be that all they're able to do is a couple of things. It might be that they're able to do more. And so um, balancing the expectation with the support, I think, is an important part of that. But yeah, I'm spot on 
Chief, and thank you for that. I know um, this this bit of, well, going back to what you guys said, you've men- mentioned incentives there for developers. Um, what kind of incentives would you, can you offer a developer to ensure that they're motivated to, to, to be better? You can go um, everywhere from handing out swag to people that are doing a good job on the program or, or finding issues, all the way up to including it as part of their job spec in the company incentive schemes, right? And it really depends on the maturity of the program. I think when you've got something that's newer and greener, it is harder to get buy-in for the deeper, more impactful, more integrated changes. But there's always something you can do. You know, you can give them a Security Champions branded polo shirt, um, or you can give them a, a component of their bonus based on performance on the program. Perfect. Thank I think uh, just uh, to uh, elaborate on what Mark says, uh, it really depends on company. I have seen companies that go as far as they back them, their security champion with the HR recognized the certificate saying this security champion has performed in this team uh, in this duration, gone through this training and will recognize their contribution which is really good for them if they want to, for example, later on with their CV and the new uh, interview or even just use it as a credit later on. So I think that's also a way to do that, but not always working in every organization, but I do encourage the organization to do that. Perfect. There's a lot been said, Chris, I'll come to you. Yeah, I think there's actually a really interesting tension here. Security champions, there's, there's two things that sort of come to my mind immediately. One is we're talking about culture. And the other one is, as Mark said, we're talking about levers. We don't have direct input there. And so I think you have, you also have to think about how humans are motivated. I, mean, I read a great book on motivation a few years ago. And they talked about things like hand washing in hospitals. And they said when they made it sort of a cultural thing, hand washing went really up. But when they started to pay doctors and people around the hospital for hand washing, hand washing actually went down. Why? Because they saw it as an altruistic thing and wanted something they wanted to be involved in. But when you begin to pay for it, that, it lost that luster. So how do you structure your motivations is really important because that fits into what the culture of the company. And, that, and that's the other part of that is what's the culture of your company? And if the culture of your company is 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 organized around certain things, those are the, those are the areas you really want to focus in. So some of the areas I've been really successful with security champions is not making it a part of their role and not rewarding them on actually not even handing out swag, but finding a way to integrate that into the into the security mechanism. I'm a big fan of trying to create um, guardrails over gates. Occasionally, gates are really useful, like using bug bars for releases. Uh, and if you have a rule that says, "Hey, you know, you're not allowed to release code to production," for example, um, that that doesn't that has you know, we're going to run all our tools, and as long as you don't have any critical security vulnerabilities, you're allowed to go to prod. However, you may have found issues, you know, leading up to that release. Well, someone's got to someone's got to resolve them and close them. Uh, and a lot of times you put that onus on the security team. Well, guess what? If you've got a security champion that we trust, we can we can give them that task, and that speeds up your development. So we're giving an advantage to the team. We're giving an advantage to that developer. We're trying to drive that security culture, being knowledgeable about what our tools are doing and what we're trying to achieve. But at the same time, we're trying to give development teams the power to move at the speed they want to move. So I think you've got to look at a mix of, of sort of direct and indirect motivations that you want people to get involved in, and you've got to build a culture of security at the company. People from day one need to be bought in on that. Um, for example, when I worked at Snapchat, the very first day, one of my favorite things was giving the security training on day one. And developers, we told them in that training, like, hey, 
you're all here with us. You're going to get five minutes right now. But after this, later this week, you're going to get several days of training from our team on, on how that works. We we made sure they understood what our security and privacy goals were. And I, I like driving that. If you, you get people involved in day one on, on why security and privacy matter to your products, why it matters to your customers, why it matters to your market, then it matters to them in terms of their job. Uh, and then you're backing that up with sort of the tacit stuff of, hey, here's how it's going to fit into our program. Hey, here's here's the sort of maybe the special thing you get because of it, you know, and some uh, I would say some swagger within your team um, because you're that security champion for a group and allowing them to understand and do things even better. Perfect. Um, Mark, your mic had been unmuted for a while. Did you want to add anything? Yeah. 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 So I, I wanted to, to pick up on Curtis's uh, point around um which incentive you choose being really important. And um, I think it is really important. And um, I, I wondered whether Chris had any more insight on how you apply which, because I suspect that culturally which things work and um, are dependent on the kind of organization you're in. Does that tally with your expectation? I, I would agree with that. I think that the, it, it does tally very closely to the organization you're in. Like obviously things that we did at you know, Mozilla to get things to go are very different than things that, they did when it was at Microsoft or even at Snapchat. I mean, how those organizations look at the culture of security and their customer base really will tell you about what motivates people because I think it also fits into the company's values. Perfect. Ben, I'll come back to you. Uh, really, just want to talk about that uh, the question about uh, what Marcus says, the culture. There's also some uh, different uh, company that uh, it really depends on if the company is selling product or is the company actually selling the service. This will really make a difference in the culture and uh, also the C-level support in the company. For example, a, a, com a company selling product, they have a, a more permanent team that support that product and people tend to stay on the product longer. Even they have a, a little bit harsh deadline, they always have a gap, for example, just before the Christmas or in the holiday period, they can work on that. Well, those company, for example, agency consultants company need to sell their service or so they need to come up with a project with very harsh deadline in very short time. And there is less niggle room and that influence how uh, the company culture dealing with that. So we have to be able to uh, for whoever who is uh, going to organize security champion program, having to notice this kind of attribute to deal with that accordingly. Sure. Yeah, I was just gonna, I was just gonna add on to what Feng is saying there. Like the output of the company is very different. Like I can look back on my time, you know, here at Gen, which is a security company, and how we value security, and how that varies from, say, a company like Wells Fargo or Humana where their prime business isn't making security products, how, how they think about security and privacy are very different. And so how you have, not only have where developers live in those organizations, but what those organizations value, and then overall what the company values, really changes about how they work at security and sometimes privacy within that model. Uh, and so under, I think from a security perspective, one of the things that has been really strong for me has been trying very hard in my practice as a security practitioner across the world to understand the business. Um, you know, it's great that we speak security, but if you don't speak business, you're not speaking the language of the people who are making the money and driving the company. And so if you want to understand how to motivate people, you have to understand what the company's about and what the business is trying to achieve. Amazing. Thanks for that. Um, I, I, Chris, I'll, I'll stick with you then. Um, 
I suppose the, the next question kind of explores the operational and procedural aspects of collaboration, right? So I'll come to you for your question. Yeah, we've touched on it a little bit. You know, it's how can we establish effective information flows that integrate security work into development life cycles? You know, how do we work where the developers are um, to ensure responsiveness to engineering needs and when security process or tooling might fall short sometimes? Like, how do we really react to that? Frank, can I come to you? Um, maybe I want to ask a question before I try to answer this question. By sure. information flow, do you mean the security requirement on the project from the client? Or what do you mean exactly by that information flow? I, I don't think I'm really asking more about the, how we get security information. In, it, it, let me, let me clarify. It, I believe that it's bi-directional. There are two directions. One, you are correct that there is security helping the organization understanding the security requirements they believe that we believe they should be integrating into their product but it's, what i'm really getting at is the the other direction as i'm building product and i'm running tools and processes maybe i'm doing threat modeling or sas and dast or sca or any of these other number of things how do we get that data out of those systems that we own and, you know we we've decided we we're going to use them and get them how do we get that data usefully in front of the engineering folks so they can take appropriate action? You know, often, you know, they may see something as a false positive. They may see something as uh, a lower or lower priority than we think it might be. How do we help them understand what we're asking them to do? And how do we chunk up that information in a way that they can consume and then take action? Okay. Okay. So I understand. So I'm, probably want to break it down. Either there are two levels of this. One is the information that has been automatically generated by the, for example, scanning. And there is another level that is what you mentioned, the threat modeling, which is, uh, I hope is manually generated instead of a tool generate that. For the first one, I think there is a need of reducing the noise, right? We have to really go in and make effort working with the uh, engineer team to, for example, fine-tune their rule set to make sure that the false positive is not so annoying that they just uh, do not care about that anymore. But for the for the next thing, I think is uh, the threat modeling result is more interesting. From my experience, is actually that should more coming from the engineer team themselves instead of a security team coming and do a threat modeling and then said, well, this is your threat modeling. This is your risk. Deal with that. And if you have any question, call me. That is a little bit of uh, what often has is nobody actually understand that. And on the call, they said, oh, we all understand it. But uh, after three months, I checked back in. They're just saying, yeah. Actually, we don't really understand it, what you are talking about. You are talking too much about security gibberish. Uh, like uh, this is uh, there is a uh, pollutioning. Uh, there is uh, something like uh, like that. So my approach or experience is uh, to work with them, guide them to do the threat modeling, and uh, not always using Stride, for example, in the threat modeling. Using, for example, DevOps model instead. So make sure that that information is uh, is uh, formed from them with our guidance and more speak towards them. In, essentially, we have to speak their language in some way. Um, that's my thought. Mark, I'll come to you next. Thank you. 
And so I'm going to pick up on the part of the question that refers to um, when security processes are tooling and falling short, right? And, th and th the first thing this sort of reminds me of is the, the need for when you have something that really needs to work, providing redundant ways of getting that information to the right people. And um, for some of those tooling that we use, for some of the processes that we use, there are very often different views of the same things, right? You know, you might have tooling that provides um, developer-focused um, data and metrics on a particular set of tests. You might also have things that integrate into um, the things that are managed by your internal platforms folks, you know, your continuous integration pipelines and that sort of stuff. And then you've got the things that surface and more detailed security things that, that we would then process and report to various um, stakeholders within the business, right? And if you've got those things configured in such a way so that developers see what developers need to do, regardless of what you're doing within security, they've got that information, right? Now, you do need to be careful with that, though. And, and this sort of comes back to something that Fung's already said, which is that um, we don't want to give people too much data. And one of the great things about security tooling in particular is that it'll give you a whole load of information. One of the terrible things about security tooling in particular is that it'll give you a whole load of information. And not all of that information is of um, equivalent usefulness, right? And so there's a couple of things you can do. You can change the thresholds on, on when things are seen by different groups by default. You only really want people outside of security to see, to see the stuff that's properly on fire, you know, critical, you know, possibly be at the end of highs. And... Um, and then the other is about sort of reducing the number of different categories of things that you're giving to people. And I'll give you an example here. You know, you might have an SCA tooling that gives you a whole bunch of stuff, right? And that's all noise. And part of your triage process might be to let you know which of those findings are actually exploitable vulnerabilities, right? Once you've done that work, there's a category change from it being just a bit of intelligence to actually we've got a security vulnerability here. But you know what? All of your security vulnerabilities, whether they're found by an SCA tool, whether they're found by your developer's threat modeling, whether they're found by an external third party, they're the same category of thing. And it's, it's an exploitable thing. And so you can put those into one bucket, present those in the same way, and reduce the noise and confusion that's caused when people are looking at all of your, your charts and figures and things like that. And yeah, so hopefully I explain that at least somewhat coherently. Did you run? Yeah, I love the question, and I agree with both what Fang and Mark has been saying. You really have, want to have those strong partnerships with engineering. You want to provide them with actual vulnerabilities and not false positives. You don't want to lose that trust with uh, engineering itself. And what I love doing is what I call a crawl, walk, run, and sometimes a sprint methodology for it. Um, you want to crawl, you integrate, you do heavy integration of your tool into the ecosystem. Um, you don't want to do any blocks. All the goal for this integration is to get the data that you need. And you want to build out the appropriate dashboards so the various business units or individual engineering managers know what what's good and bad in their ecosystem. Um, and a lot of these folks will, just because they're very passionate engineers, they'll start fixing things uh, on their own. You don't need to prompt them or do anything. Um, the walk is... you probably want to start cutting tickets. So if you're finding critical issues within the ecosystem, start cutting those tickets and building that patching muscle for the engineering side. Um, and as they start uh, building that muscle, then you can slowly start integrating other security tools so that they continue to build that patching muscle. Um, run, uh, I think Curtis talked about it a lot earlier. 
there are times where you want to put blockers into your ecosystem. So uh, it's always good to actually create block. Maybe uh, I think Curtis mentioned you don't want to push any uh, critical vulnerabilities uh, as a part of the uh, ecosystem. So that's maybe what you want to do. And then Sprint would be where you can auto-patch um, and completely decouple engineering as a part of the process. So um, working through this is slow, it's meticulous. Uh, you really partnership uh, have partnerships with engineering itself in order to uh, drive the appropriate uh, um, outcomes that you want. And I'd actually take it one step further. Um, we talk a lot about processes and tooling that fall short. I want engineering to be actually involved at the POC for tooling itself. So if I'm uh, onboarding a new SAST, ultimately they're the ones that could be fixing the things. Uh, you want to have that DevX, that strong developer experience for engineering that uh, so that they actually understand the tool, they know how to work with it. Um, SCA is a great example that uh, Mark brought up. A lot of times there is a lot of false positives with their SCA tool. So you want to be able to bring in tools that have low false, posit false positives or a lot of the tools now have a reachability as well. So uh, a lot of great ways of actually dealing with uh, um, tooling, uh, the processes where they fail but it's all about partnerships and having that close partnership with engineering teams. I think it's great what you just said there, Jim, and where you bring on engineers in kind of making decisions as to as to what tools that you are actually going to be working with. Um, it's not something that I've heard on previous podcasts either, but um, yeah, I think that's a brilliant idea. Great, I'll come to you. Yeah, I, I'll just add one more thought. I think what's already been said is really, really positive. The, the one thing I think that I, had, I didn't hear there was about how you get feedback while the tools are in use. It's great to have them in POC. It's great to you know, be cutting them tickets and, you know, and living where the developers live. Uh, I think anybody who wants you to log into their security tool is making an enormous mistake. Like, please don't take developers out of their environment. Feed them where they are. Um, but the thing that, like I said, I didn't hear was how you get feedback from them as they're going. Um, you got to make sure you've got loops in there for getting feedback from them. Hey, how is this operating? How is it really working? I mean, are we watching our false positive? Are they able to report false positive? Are they able to give you feedback about the tooling as they see it? You know, and not only from developers, but you also need to be talking to engineering managers. Like, hey, what are you guys seeing? Are we giving you information that helps you make decisions? And then leaders above them, are we helping you all make decisions with this information? And what is that information doing for your business? Thank Yes, yes, just uh, to... Uh, expand on what Curtis says. I hope I'm not misleading this uh, to, into a two-level, threat-modern level, but I started to see a pattern that uh, all our questions is somehow related. So to make sure that information flow, we first need to reduce distance between the security team and the engineer team. Then we need to ensure that on the engineer team that somebody can speak both language. From the engineer team and development team, do we establish a chain uh, or channel that actually works to either understand what we are saying there and when we are not careful saying about the security gibberish there, or they want to bring out the feedback back to us because they normally work with us in a more close relationship. So they will just establish feedback look to us uh, on behalf of the team. So I'm starting to see a pattern that all three questions. Hopefully the next question is also all related. Uh, that's my thought on that. <laughs> Perfect. Mark? 
Yes, yeah, so I was going to first of all say that you know, in terms of the conversation in the in the other direction, um, sometimes, uh, very often, in fact, you know, particularly when you get sort of further down to the the, the run sprint end of of the things that Jivan was mentioning before, developers are going to tell you right if you're causing them lots of pain with the tooling that you're giving them, if you're telling them things that um, aren't useful for them, they're going to tell you a, a lot of the time, at least. You know, again, that's you know, with the usual caveat that this thing is kind of cultural and it sometimes depends on the organization. Um, but what they won't tell you, and this is where you've got to be really, really careful and make sure that there's a, a proper conversation going on, is which of the bits of information that they're getting are really, really important and meaningful for actual security improvement, right? You know, going back to the SCA tooling, um, I'm not a big fan of SCA tooling, I'll be honest with you. I like to beat on it because it's my my worst offender for um noise to signal ratio shall we say you know if you get into the habit of you know getting a notification every day and running off to fix it and um, that's great it's lovely to see them doing that work but if you really want them to focus on something else first you've got to tell them and you've got to make sure that they understand that and you've got to make sure that whatever you're putting in place to help them get those information prioritized and appropriately are right and sometimes that's a dip check exercise rather than a conversation it's a hey here are a bunch of things that you want to make sure are in place is a bunch of balances that we want to make sure are appropriate, uh, but it's on you to make sure that you're getting what you need from the security end. Probably they'll tell you on the engineering side. Well, and I think that's a great segue into talking about how we how we tune the tools we have. Like anybody who thinks you can just get a security tool and flip it on and stick it in your dev process and it's going to be a magic bullet is really sort of diluting themselves. Um, and, and you're going to have an array of tools that all want to talk about risk in a different way or talk about whatever in a different way. How you get them, really, I think the magic dust is how you as an internal team say, okay, this is great. I have this information. Here is our internal risk calculus. These are the things that are critical. These are the things that are high that come out of these tools. And sort of having a layer in between that now speaks the language that you want the engineering team to hear out of security. These are the things that are really critical out of these tools. These are the things that are really high out of these tools. These are the things that you should pay attention to. And as you said, how do we get the feedback back in there? I mean, maybe you, maybe your SCA tool is really, really overly verbose. Like, how do you shut up some of that stuff? So the dev team never sees it. It's not important to them. It's not providing value. We've got to make sure that the what we pull out of tools and what we feed into these programs and what we're helping security champions look at or the things that really matter and then provide value. Amazing. And I suppose the final question from Jiban re really brings the conversation full circle uh, by addressing the ongoing commitment to security. So do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I love how you summarized all that, Curtis, because how do you ensure that developers don't stop fixing security vulnerabilities? How do you keep them motivated and not overwhelming them with all that uh, risk information that we send up their way? I think it's probably appropriate, Curtis. I'll come. I'll come straight back to you. Well, I think that's. I, I think that's a great way to tie it back together. As you said, like, how do we keep them focused? We make sure that what we give them is actionable. We make sure that what we what we're asking them to do has value, and we make sure we listen to them. I mean, that that's a true. That's a true point in any part of human interaction. You know, we want everyone wants to be listened to, not just have things thrown at them. And security has to learn how to listen as much as it learns how to feed people information about things that scare us. Uh, and, and then I think the other part of that is making sure the organization can see that value. If you build into your program, like, hey, we're going to have a monthly brown bag or beer and chat or whatever you want to call it, where we're getting together and we're talking about the biggest, hairiest things that happen. 
and we give kudos to the people who took them on and fixed them, we're showing value. We're giving people social value as well, which I think is an important part of human interaction. Like, we're asking humans to do jobs. Let's just be realistic here. Like, yeah, security stuff is a bunch of technical stuff. We're asking humans to do things. And so you got to pull on human levers too. And that's about connection. And that's about um, feeling important. And that's about you know having autonomy, mastery, and purpose, which I think are, are important things to everybody. And so if we're building our programs that give that to the people who are asking to do this work, then we're building a virtuous cycle that continues to do that and drive it. Amazing. Mark, I'll come to you. Um, so I nearly actually picked up on this uh, in one of the previous rounds, you know, Jiran's assertion that um, good quality engineers always want to fix things. And um, it's not always the case. And uh, I think that um, without care, it is going to happen that people are going to stop fixing things. And, you know, you've got two approaches. You've got, you've got carrots, incentives, things you can do to make them feel good about fixing those things. Or you've got various grades of sticks, right? And Curtis talked earlier on about guardrails versus gates and that sort of stuff. And I think it's important to do both. I think that ultimately, if you ever want to ensure that they're not stopping doing the thing, you've got to make sure that you have a process that actively prevents them from stopping doing the thing. It might be that you've caught quality gates and you're preventing issues above a particular severity ending up in your production environments. It might be that you have other kinds of um, controls that have uh, equivalent functionality. Uh, but yeah, you know, ultimately, you're going to need to do something. I think that um, there's certainly an extent to which the more developers understand the value of the thing that they're doing, the more incentivized they are to fix it. Sometimes a lot of what we report is really, really abstract. And so and some of this sort of feeds into how you're training your champions and how you're developing your uh, developer population on the impact and uh, in, and in particular what it means for the for the business or the product that they're working on right at, at a really really basic end you know they might end up with a ticket that talks about something to do with insufficient input validation and be puzzled as to what that means and why have i got to do this thing if you've done the homework and explain to them what that thing means what the actual implication of it is and how you know combined with something else it can be a particular problem you've actually solved part of the problem they're not seeing something that means nothing to them and maybe actually this comes back to this sort of synthesis piece that, that Curtis was talking about earlier on, you know, having this um, layer between what we see that converts it into the language that other people understand. You know, part of what we can do is to help, and in particular when something is important or a class of particular set of problems you're seeing a lot in a particular environment, being able to make sure that that is articulated and included with the information flow that the developers are getting can be a really useful tool. How you do that varies from organization to organization, of course. Frank? Yes, I think a lot of has already been said. Uh, what I, from my view, there are three major points. And the first one is, of course, what Curtis said. We have to give them enough information, good enough information, so they can do the job. The second one, I think, is uh, also <clears throat> is we need to, like Mark said, we need a process. For example, there will be, it depends on the uh, company culture maturity. Maybe this is engineer maturity where a framework that says uh, fixing security has important uh, value. That is from the company culture that uh, saying that that gives a little bit of drive behind it, why we need to do that. The third one from my experience is also very important is uh, the pitfall what we do is always engage with developer. 
instead actually for in the agile scrum process who decide which ticket is picked it actually lies on the product owner or engineer manager so that's the key contact we need to involve in the whole process and not just talking to developer a lot of the developer says oh at least in my experience they are willing to do that job but that's never get the priority in the backlog so we need to include a product owner engineer of course we have to have high level c level support but to, really to do this kind of daily task is uh, make sure they understand why this is important how do we help them analysis this ticket to say oh this actually has this kind of a product impact if we don't fix it and then to make sure all three combined i think could address the problem a little bit further everyone seems to be nodding away Jiran, I'll, uh, I'll come to you to summarize i, I thought that thing it summarized it pretty well but i, I agree with what everyone said like uh, curtis mentioned about things being actionable and making sure that they are doing things of value. Uh, ultimately, we never want to do things that are going to waste or not being actually not doing the more appropriate thing. So I don't totally agree with that. Uh, Mark uh, Carrickson sticks makes total sense. Uh, and he, as a strong security engineering org, you know when to use one or the other. Um, I, I think we all prefer carrots, uh, just in general, but. Um, there are times where you have to remind folks that you do have an actual stick that you can actually wield. Um, I, I love how Mark also talked about various grades of sticks. Yeah, uh, sometimes you need to pull up the sledgehammer uh, at times. Uh, and Fang you, is perfectly summarized. You need to give inform enough information for people to do the job, need a strong process, and don't always directly deal with engineers. Um, they don't have that autonomy um, to be able to do the work that they need to do. Um, you, you have to work with uh, leadership, make sure that uh, everyone knows that they're devoting a certain amount of uh, their backlog to uh, security security work, and just to work with uh, product management that way uh, to make sure that uh, that's actually happening. I really love just around answering why. Why is this important? And um, why our customers are demanding security and privacy? Why the end users need that security and privacy? Um, a lot of uh, work at a lot of us work at companies that have PHI. Um, we want to make sure that we're working really hard to protect our customers and end users to make sure that that sensitive information doesn't get out. So, a lot of great reasons, uh, uh, just in general. Right. Yes. Just uh, to expand on what Jiva has said, uh, the why is really important. But uh, sometimes uh, in my training or workshop, I. It, how to see that uh, directly saying this is a uh, dark web this is how your data is going to be sold and give them an example from other uh, we don't actually ex explore dark web of course but there are enough training resources on youtube on uh, already just to, to tell you what's going to happen if your data is going to be leaked and uh, how important that is I think I have seen some impact uh, once we have gone through that to see a direct impact of uh, data being leaked through the security vulnerabilities. So yeah, just to try to expand on that using example. Amazing. Mark? Yeah, so I was going to drill into that point a little bit more. So in terms of making it meaningful, 
what makes something meaningful to someone in the product organization is going to be very different to what makes something meaningful for a developer. So a developer um, or other engineer might very well understand sort of issues like equivalence. You know, if, if an attacker is able to do this, this means they're also able to do X, Y, and Z. And so um, it adds complexity perhaps, but it's worth remembering that meaningful isn't one thing for one audience. Amazing. Listen, I, it's, it's been very, very fun, uh, exciting listening to uh, all of you talk. I, I'm almost a little bit like a, I don't know, like a bit of a knowledge sponge, just trying to write down as much notes as I can. And I'll, I'll never get to actually input these practices into my day-to-day -day life because obviously I'm not a security engineer. I'll never be in charge of a team or report into a, you know, different uh, developer teams within different organisations. But I suppose to summarise, obviously today we we we're navigating a journey of uniting developers and security teams. Um, we've explored balanced structures that honor autonomy and collaboration. Uh, our focus then shifted to nurturing security champions and seamless integration. And then lastly, obviously, we've addressed the sustained developer motivation, which is uh, vital for security commitment, right? So this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Curtis, Feng, Chiban, and Mark for providing the insights into the topic as thought leaders in the industry. I'll let you know where you can find them on social media on the comments on the post. Uh, if you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts in the AppSec world, reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at gareth.davis at evolutionjobs.co.uk. See you next time.